Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. Welcome into another edition of Take It to the Bank. We've got our official recap episode and this is going to suck for me because I, I spent all week last week talking about the Steelers, saying how they're going to win, talking about how the Ravens offense has some flaws, talking about how this defense might be a little bit overrated, and boy, was I wrong. And, and I'm not too proud to admit that I was wrong. You know, I, I'm not that egotistical. I, I'm ready to admit I was wrong, the Raven, I was wrong Ravens block. This is the second week in a row I predicted the Ravens to lose, and they won. They're on a two-game winning streak. Kudos to them. Good news for you guys is I still think they're losing this week. So if the trend continues, the Ravens should win this week. But my co-host, Mr. Vasily Larikos, he said the Ravens were going to win. So he's loving life right now. What's going on, man? It was a great weekend. All my teams in reality won. All my teams in fantasy won. And uh, there's nothing sweeter than beating Pittsburgh on the road if you're a Ravens fan. From warm-ups, you could just tell the Ravens, they had that good look in their eyes. And they were just laser-focused. And Pittsburgh as a team... As we know, they try to intimidate the opposition, and that's their that's their modus operandi. But the Ravens punched them in the mouth right from the jump, and they stayed aggressive throughout. Excellent team win. I think that what happened is I overrated this Steelers defense. I didn't realize how bad they were. When I came, went back to watch the All-22, I seriously question what Keith Butler, the, def- the defensive coordinator for Pittsburgh, is doing. Because on almost every single play, it seems like half the team was running man coverage, half the team was running zone, and they just didn't know what they were doing. I mean, on John Brown's uh, 33-yard touchdown, if that was a complete busted coverage. No one knew on that side of the field what they were doing, what coverage they were in. I mean, it was an absolute joke for Pittsburgh, specifically defensively. And Ben Roethlisberger looked awful in the second in the second half. First quarter, he was sh- first half, he was a little shaky, but in that second half, he was brutal. He was missing so many throws. It was an abs- it, it was a great defensive performance for Baltimore. But we're going to talk. First, as always, about Joe Flacco. What a performance from Joe Flacco. It was a great game. He, you know, Outside of that first quarter in Cincinnati, he's been nearly flawless on this season. But first, I think we need to give a little bit of credit to the coaching staff. Marty Morningwig, the offensive coordinator, and Don Martindale, the defensive coordinator. What a transformation since that week two loss in Cincinnati. I mean, they've just been unbelievable. Yeah, I, I want to give Martindale credit because I think that his game planning isn't always stout, I should say. I think sometimes, and especially in the first half, they struggle, obviously. But what he does at halftime in terms of adjustments is just incredible. I mean, they've only allowed nine points in four games in the second half, no touchdowns. It, it, it seems like, to me, the game plan is always shoddy, but he's really good at identifying and figuring out what's going on and kind of adjusting to the team, to the 
to the opposing offense and shutting them down, whatever they're trying to do. So I want to give him credit as well. But Marty Morningweg, what an absolute great game plan because what I'm seeing and something that I want to look forward to is teams are now running more man coverage against the Ravens, cover two men, or they have been as of late. And Marty is identifying it. I don't know if he's reading my film pieces talking about it or he's just figuring it out himself. I mean, you could argue which one it was, but he's figuring it out and they're running great high-low concepts. They're running rub routes and they're creating matchups where they're all, where they're wide receivers can win. And, and I really liked his game plan. I mean, some little trickery with the Max Williams play. I mean, Al Michaels was going crazy over it. Everybody, I mean, I never seen that before. So great game plan for Marty. But back to Flacco, let's... Let's give this guy credit because I, I was one of the people banging on the table saying this is a make-or-break year for him. He's got to come out, and he's got to be effective. He's got to make good decisions. He's got to be more accurate with the football. He's got to take care of the football. And, and so far through four games, outside of, the like you said, that first quarter against Cincinnati, he's done exactly that. Well, he did what he was supposed to do against a bad defense in week four. You carve them up and you don't make mistakes. That's what a, a franchise quarterback is supposed to do. Besides the miss to Crabtree down the sideline and a high pass to Willie Sneed across the middle, he was he was nearly flawless. Pinpoint accuracy, decision-making. He set up Brown's early touchdown with his eyes, and it was truly a, a professional-grade performance. I do have my, uh, my grievances, though. I, it was a great performance by Joe Flacco, and, and I'm not taking anything away from that, but I want you guys to go to my Twitter page or you can go on the, the Game Pass or whatever and rewatch it. There's a play, um, I believe it's in the second quarter, where Joe Flacco, he hits uh, Michael Crabtree on a third down, but the Steelers were running cover two man, and, and Chris Moore on the outside just completely burned his matchup. The safety was in terrible position, nowhere near nowhere near Chris Moore, and, and Flacco just missed him. I mean, this would have went for a touchdown without a doubt. Well, he did look that way, actually. He, lo he looked at Moore, but he didn't, he didn't pull the trigger. I don't know why, and... They ended up getting the first down, so you can't really nitpick that play too much, but he did miss a potential touchdown. So, obviously, that's one mistake. But other than that, I thought that they – and there was a couple more plays as well. You can see in the film piece. But other than that, I thought the offense played really, really well. They're operating at a high level. And, and credit the offensive line. This was a Steelers team. Although their defense is weak, they're pretty good. At, it's a pretty potent pass rush. They're top five in sacks. And they kind of shut them down. They allowed two sacks. And, and James Hurst, man, we, we've been hating on him for a little bit now, but – Give this guy some credit, man. He's been performing at a high level, kind of shutting down guys. I mean, I think he'd be better at guard, but he's holding his own out there at right tackle. Absolutely. They, their line definitely played a good game. Pittsburgh only hit Flacco twice the entire game, which is an impressive stat on the road. Uh, as usual, Skura was getting pushed back more than you want, and Lewis did give up a sack to Dupree on a stunt. But the protection was outstanding on that 70-yard bomb to smoke in the second quarter. And Marty also used some max protection, which worked pretty well. Um, you know, with Joe locked in and Marty scheming up the play, these plays, I think Marty deserves the game ball. I have to come back to Marty for a moment. You know, he mixed in Lamar Jackson. Most of the plays were positive plays. He used two tight end sets on more than half of the offensive snaps and used a lot of pre-snap motion to have Boyle and Max Williams help out, blocking especially. He had some bootlegs, a tunnel screen. He put Ronnie Stanley in the slot on one play. Uh, it's extremely inventive uh, game plan, and uh, it was masterful by Marty. But back to the line, you know, I don't think this line needs to be fantastic one-on-one -on -one when you have a quarterback that's locked in 
and an offensive coordinator who's putting them in a position to succeed. I wish there was some blogger and podcaster who was telling people about Marty Morningweg and how he could be successful, just give him more time. I, I wish someone out there was saying that. Unfortunately, I don't think anyone was. Oh, wait, I was, because Marty Morningweg is proving me right, because what he's doing, and, and those Lamar Jackson plays, I, I just want to give people credit, because Lamar Jackson, everyone was like, oh, well, they're not working. They clearly worked against the Steelers, and they only worked because of game planning, because they put enough tape out there that the Steelers had to kind of, they didn't really know what to do, and they had to adjust for when Lamar came in. You saw, I mean, they caught a timeout. That play was going for a touchdown if the if Pittsburgh didn't call for a timeout because he had, Lamar Jackson had a wide open lane. He was probably scoring a touchdown. Uh, he was good in the red zone. The one thing I want to see more of is I want to see RPOs with Lamar Jackson because I think now there's enough tape out there that most teams are kind of expecting a run when Lamar Jackson comes out there. So hit me with an RPO because I think the linebackers are going to slide and overcommit to the run, and you're going to have a guy wide open in front like a slant read option, something like that. I think the slant's going to be wide open, whether it's with Snead, Mark Andrews, Hayden Hurst, even when he comes back. I mean, I think that play is going to work really well. So keep the Lamar Jackson plays in the playbook because I think they're working pretty well. So obviously, kudos to Marty. I agree giving him the game ball because he really just out-schemed them and he out-coached Keith Butler. Um, I, I, I want to finally talk about one other thing, though. Michael Crabtree and his drops, are, are they a concern for you? They are a concern for me. He has, I believe, six drops already through this season. And according to the broadcast, he leads the league in drops over the last four seasons combined. And, uh, you know, a lot of the Ravens receivers played well. Max Williams and Nick Boyle, even uh, my man Tim White had a, a big catch. Willie Sneed is just outstanding on third down. And, of course, John Brown. But I'm hoping that these Crabtree concentration drops are what they really are. I hope they don't come back and, and bite the Ravens at a crucial moment later in the season. So you're not going to give respect to Delance Turner? Go ahead. You're, I, I'm asking you. Are, are you not going to give Delance Turner respect? I mean, he had a, he had a nice four-yard run. He had a 10-yard reception. I mean, Delance Turner, I mean, earning a little bit more rep, earning a little bit more snaps. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I like Delance Turner. I like the way they used him because Alex Collins fumbled. We'll get to that in a second. But Delance Turner stepping out. I mean, this was such a, a team victory offensively where, like you mentioned, Tim White stepped up, Delance Turner stepped up, Willie Sneed stepped up in a big way. I mean, I think Willie Sneed is, is really going down as one of the most underrated additions because what he's able to do in the slot, especially when he runs those like zigzag routes where he fakes inside and cuts back outside, he's doing really well. He's beating his man coverage a lot. I really like him. And John Brown, my goodness, that guy, I mean, he... He deserves another contract, obviously, and I'm, I'm concerned, and this is kind of me just being a little bit negative, but I'm concerned he's going to price himself out of Baltimore's range in the offseason because how well he's playing. Uh, I'm concerned about that as well. I, I recommended a contract extension to him about a month ago, if I remember correctly, uh, and if the choice is between him or some of the other potentially high-priced free agents upcoming, I think you have to keep Brown. And let's just talk about the the – the distribution, it was obviously a pass-first game plan with 17 of the 24 first downs coming through the air. And the Ravens did hit the pair of chunk plays to Smokey Brown, which in my mind, he is the team MVP through the first quarter of the seasons. And uh, they took some shots with Brown on Joe Hayden. They didn't connect on the majority of them, but only a couple is all you need to really change the game. Now, the run game wasn't that much better. Uh, they had a 3.2 average yards per carry. Not great. Stanley had a couple nice blocks. Yonda's starting to knock that rust off. But to me, the positive sign is 
Uh, they only had 35 rushing yards in the first half at, on 11 attempts, which is actually a positive sign because in today's NFL, contenders need to be able to play well on the road with a pass-heavy game script. I agree. And Alex Collins, as I mentioned before, his fumble was a concern to me because that's an issue he struggled with last season. He kind of corrected it, and then now it's kind of back again where he fumbled. I mean, that's a costly fumble on the goal line. And I'm my biggest thing with Alex Collins is sometimes I question his vision. I don't think that he's the greatest runner in some of the, the zone concepts that the Ravens run because in zone, it's a lot of reads where you where you figure out if you're going to cut it, you're going to bounce it, you're going to bang it, whatever you're going to do. And I think that sometimes he struggles to make the correct read. And to be perfectly honest with you, Buck Allen should be the featured back. Buck Allen has looked like the best running back on their team thus far. Yeah, I agree with that completely, Logan. Collins, you just simply cannot fumble in that situation. I mean, it's terrible. The Ravens had a chance to, to totally put them away early if you punch that one in there. And I think Buck Allen should definitely be uh, the short yardage back, the high leverage situation back. And I agree. He just Buck is just so smooth and he's so efficient with his touches that I, I agree. I think he should be the lead back. But I agree. Buck Allen, probably the most unsung player on the roster this year. Uh, what what the good offenses and good teams do? They put bad teams, and sometimes they put good teams away. And the Ravens, that was my only concern, and my takeaway from this game is you got to find a way. When you're up that many points, you have to put the teams away. You can't let teams, especially like Pittsburgh, teams that, that are good at coming, from, coming back from behind, you can't let them come back. You can't give them a chance, and that fumble to me is unacceptable on the goal line. That ruined their streak. I mean, I know that no one really outside of Baltimore really gives a crap about that record of 13 for 13, the red zone. But really, I mean, when you look at it, it goes deeper in that record because you have to find a way to put them away. You can't let them hang around. And the Ravens uh, in this game, the official stat will say they were 20% in the red zone, one for five. But you have to remember the last drive, the Ravens inherited the ball on the 17-yard line. So officially they started in the red zone, but two kneel down. So obviously for my stats, I'll say they were 25% in the red zone, one for four. Um, but with a fumble, two field goals, and a touchdown. But that, that to me, was kind of a concern is you've got to put it away. You've got to score touchdowns in that. You've got to get a better percentage than, than 20%, 25%. It was pivotal. Fortunately, defensive coordinator Wink Martindale made some excellent halftime adjustments that really got Ben off his game, and Ben just never regained his rhythm. And I think the big thing was he was using a lot of zone blitz in the first half, especially sending the safeties, which was not working. Frankly, he was blitzing too much. In the second half, he went primarily to the dime personnel with Anthony Levine. The Ravens actually played roughly 90% of all the snaps with either nickel or dime personnel on the field. And I think the key was switching to, to having a little bit more speed on the field and stop sending the safeties, which, which allowed the Ravens to totally shut out Pittsburgh in the second half. Well, we talked about it. We said that blitzing Eric Weddle it just, just shouldn't happen. I, I, and it's not because Eric Weddle is not a great blitzer, because he is. He's pretty good at blitzing. But the problem is, is when you blitz Weddle and you have teach, uh, Tony Jefferson back there, whether it's a cover one where he's responsible for the whole deep part of the field, or, or it's just a cover two or cover three where he's responsible for a deep third or deep half, he's just not very good in that area. I mean, and that's nothing against him. He's just not a great deep coverage safety. He's much better closer to the line of scrimmage. So I would put him more in a position 
position closer to the line of, line of scrimmage. Let him run the let him run in the zone coverage, maybe the hooks or the flats or the curl routes or the curl options instead of having him be responsible for the deep third because he's proven that he's not that good at that and his his speed is not great for the deep third of the field. And I think that that better offenses and better teams are going to target that. And I know the Steelers have a pretty good offense, but I feel like their game plan offensively really failed to attack Baltimore's weaknesses, which is honestly Tony Jefferson. Sure, but I thought Jefferson overall had a good game. How about that play ripping the ball out of Vance McDonald's hands in the first quarter? That may have been the single play of the game. And outside of a couple big games from McDonald where he ran over some defenders, I thought the Ravens bottled up their tight ends rather well considering Mosley I thought he was uh, he was mediocre in his return from injury he did miss a tackle in their successful two-point conversion uh, but he also did well to bring down the receivers after short passes it doesn't appear that his knee injury will be an issue moving forward yeah and, and the other uh, interesting stat that I want to throw out that the Ravens held Pittsburgh I mean the Steelers only ran it 11 times but they held him to 1.7 yards per carry 19 total rushing yards and that's a great number. And, and But so it's something that we talk about a lot is the Ravens, you don't want to force teams to pass the ball because that's just not, and that's what they did last year because and, and, that's just not smart. But when you can stop the run as effectively as they were, you make teams totally one-dimensional and you're able to kind of drop more guys back in coverage and you're able to stop them and give them credit for what they did. I mean, I know Vance McDonald had a little bit of success. I think he had five receptions for like 62 yards or something. But give them credit for, for shutting down Antonio Brown. Give them credit for, for, for taking taking their tight ends out because their tight ends, Vance McDonald and Jesse James, have both had success, especially against Baltimore, and, and they kind of effectively neutralized them, and they and they forced Big Ben to make difficult decisions, and, and he failed oftentimes. Uh, sure, and the I thought the secondary was the best unit, maybe outside of, of the quarterback in this game. The defense posted 10 passes defensed, including two breakups and the game-sealing interception from Anthony Levine, a beautiful punch-out from Brandon Carr on Juju Smith-Schuster in the back of the end zone, a deflection from Chris Wormley, who has developed into a, a solid defensive tackle for the Ravens, and even big Brandon Williams deflected a ball. And to me, Marlon Humphrey's man coverage on Antonio Brown was impressive for the most part. Of course, A.B. caught a score on that double move to turn the momentum before halftime, but Marlon was step for step for him on that play. And Humphrey, he really looks like he's growing into a top 10 corner in the NFL. You want to talk about game balls. Give it to Brandon Carr. What a performance by him. I mean, I know he allowed a couple catches, but he looked really, really good. Uh, a couple clutch pass breakups, including that one, the Juju Smith-Schuster in the red zone, or the end zone. He looks, Brandon Carr looks really good. I thought that now the Ravens have a luxury problem where they're going to have three quality cornerbacks and, and it's, I'm curious what they're going to do with Jimmy Smith. I mean, obviously Jimmy Smith starts, but how much do you rotate Brandon Carr in and out in and out of the lineup? Well, it's really four cornerbacks because Tavon Young has been very solid since that week two game where he was exposed a little bit by Tyler Boyd. And if you've seen Boyd tearing up the league over the last couple weeks, that performance is a little bit more understandable. Um, so I don't know what they're going to do. I know Carr has that consecutive games started streak. Personally, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Uh, I think the best plan is to have the offense continue putting up 
big leads in the first half, and then you can uh, force teams into four wide situations and play all four corners. Would you put Mar- Marlon Humphrey in the slot over Young, or no? You keep Young in the slot. I'm not sure. I-, I thought that after the Cincinnati game, but Young's just really playing well. He's a very good tackler. He he had a- he jumped the route in this game against Pittsburgh and almost grabbed the pick. I mean, maybe you just kind of rotate through all four and keep him a little bit fresh. Uh, but I definitely wouldn't bench Young at this point. I think I agree with that. If it were me, I'd put Jimmy and Marlon on the outside, have Tavon Young in the slot, and then you just rotate Carr in based on the situations, things like that. Because Carr, obviously, I mean, last year he kind of had an up-and-down season, but so far he's been look, he's looked pretty good this year. And Jimmy Jimmy Smith, you don't really know. What, I mean, I know that he's really good, and he's coming off of a career year last year where arguably he was, having, he was on his way to having his best season before he tore his Achilles. But, again, you really don't know what's, what's going to happen with him. I know he's suffered a, suffered a couple of injuries. How is he going to come back again? I mean, I know the suspension. I mean, I, I, what kind of shape is he in? I think it's kind of playing by ear, all, all dependent on what kind of shape and how good Jimmy Smith is playing. But getting him back is obviously crucial for this defense. Willie Henry might be coming back as well. And that's another thing because you have Chris Wormley, who's underratedly playing really well right now. So you're, the defensive line is going to get much better with Willie Henry out there, whether you put him in the three-tech spot. You can even – I'd even say you can, you can argue that on obvious passing situations, you can put him at the nose-tech spot. So – there's a lot of, of different combinations that this defense can do, and now the inactives are going to become that much harder because you're relatively healthy and you're getting a lot of crucial pieces back. You're getting Hayden Hurst back, most likely. You're getting Willie Henry. You're getting Jimmy Smith. I mean, this is a team that is getting healthy right now, and, and look out. I agree. Willie Henry would be huge. They need that interior guy to really round out the pass rush. And Martindale did rotate through his outside backers much more effectively in this game that he had early on, Tim Williams had 20 snaps compared to 41 for Suggs, 40 for Judon, and Tyus Bowser even saw a couple snaps. And uh, Suggs had his traditional good game against Pittsburgh and was stripped Ben on one play. But Timmy Williams, he had a really good night with multiple pressures, a big sack off the left side. I think he, along with Willie Henry, is the key to unlock, unlocking the pass rush so Wink can generate pressure rushing only four That's what the elite defenses can do, and they don't have to send extra guys and expose their secondary to big plays downfield. So if Timmy Williams continues to develop into that that playmaker off the edge and Willie Henry comes back soon, I think teams in this league really need to watch out for the Ravens' defense. If you can create pressure and generate pressure just from a four-man rush, especially with this defense and how talented they are in the secondary, they're almost unstoppable. And that, that, that's kind of my take on it because if they're able to get a good enough pressure and, and pressure and, and generate sacks off of just a four-man rush, I don't know how you're going to put up points on this defense because of how talented the, the secondary is. At that point, the possibilities are endless. You can show man, you can run zone, you can do whatever you want, and you can kind of just have your way with offenses. I don't care who, who it is because you're just going to be able to generate so much pressure from that four-man rush that it, it, it's unlimited possibilities. So, so great job. By the by, the front by the defensive front for the Ravens and able to generate pressure with those four man rushes. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about, I'm a little concerned about John Harbaugh, and, and I'm going to explain this because I thought there were some questionable coaching decisions uh, um, in this week uh, against the Steelers. I know it didn't haunt them, and I understand that they still won the game and it was pretty good. But I don't understand when it's 14 to 14, the, all the momentum's lost. It's fourth and inches, and, and you're on like the 40, whatever. You're on your own 45 yard line with, with a little time left in the second half or second quarter. 
I don't know why you don't go for it. I feel like all the numbers and all the analytics that he talks about tells you to go for it. Well, that is true. Most of the analytics will say that you are better off going for it on when you pass your own 40-yard line, even when even when you're in field goal range. But I do understand that a little bit because I think what he did was he what he acted like he was going to go for it, drew the clock down to the point where Pittsburgh, I think, only had about 15 or 20 seconds left before half. And he kind of uh, outgamed Tomlin in that scenario. If Tomlin had taken the timeout immediately, they would have had a much better chance. So I don't hate that decision, but but I do uh, I do see where you're coming from. My whole thing was I think that they didn't go for it because I think that they just wanted to get into halftime because all the momentum, like I said, is completely shifted at this point to Pittsburgh. They just tied it up. Tied it up 14-14, and, they're, and they had no business being in the game. Pittsburgh was completely getting outplayed, yet somehow they were tied. And I think John Harbaugh just wanted the game to get to, get to halftime just so they can kind of adjust, regroup, and come back out. And, and it worked because nothing happened after that, obviously. Pittsburgh just kneeled it, and they went to halftime. And then the Ravens came out hot, and they ended up winning 26-14. The other questionable coaching decision that I want to talk about, the Ravens only had a six-point lead. They were deep in Pittsburgh territory. There was a little bit under four minutes left. And the Ravens threw it on second and third down, and only 11 seconds were taken off the clock. I'm sorry, but when you're playing a, a, a stout offense like Pittsburgh that can get points just like that, I don't know why you're not running the football in second and third down. Call it conservative, call it vanilla, call it whatever you want. But you have to you have to be smarter than that. You have to take time off the clock. You can't give them uh, as much time as they can to try to come back. Nine points for Pittsburgh offense of Ben Roethlisberger, Antonio Brown, and everybody, and Juju Smith-Schuster and all the other guys they have. That's nothing. So, so I really that call really pissed me off because I thought that 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 was an opportunity that they opened the door up for Pittsburgh. I mean, because if you don't. If you run it on both second and third down, you're either forcing them to call timeouts or the clock just runs and they have significantly less time. That's a fair critique. I'm a big proponent of a pass-first offense, but in that situation, you do. I would have ran the ball for sure. And let's touch on special teams real quick. The model of consistency, Justin Tucker, a perfect four for four on field goals. And then Tim White, he wasn't great on returns, but to be honest, there wasn't very much blocking for him. I think the blocking situation should improve when Anthony Averett is able to return and help block those gunners on, on returns. But but really, it was a team win all the way around. That it was. And I want to quickly touch on this for Joe Flacco. I want to go back to him. So he, if he continues this pace, which I, I don't know if he will, I don't know if he can, but if he does, he's going to have a, a career career. And I said it twice because of how good, how bad he's performed numbers-wise in his career but he's going to have an insane career year where he's on pace to hit the 5,000-yard mark, 30-plus touchdowns, something he's never done before, and he's going to hit the 4,000-yard mark for only the second time in his career. And it's really going to lead to a point where you're saying if he keeps playing like this and they go in the playoffs, even if they don't win the Super Bowl, but if they go far in the playoffs and he's playing this good, what the hell are you going to do with him in the offseason? That's an interesting question. I've been thinking about that as well. I'm kind of wondering if this Lamar Jackson special packages, and it's really just been the tip of the iceberg. I think the Ravens are going to find some explosive plays from Lamar Jackson later on this season. Uh, I'm wondering if that can be a long-term thing. Maybe maybe we're in 2000, the 2020 season, and Lamar is still having 10 to 15 snaps a game, and Flacco is still the starter. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I think there's a way to make that work and and reap the value out of taking Lamar in the first round and and having him on the field to make some plays and still continuing to groom him for the future. But 
really Joe. I mean, he proved he can execute on the road, which was a big step for him. That's uh, that's something that we've been wanting to see. And with four games in the books and 12 remaining, the Ravens are tied for first place in the division at 3-1, and one, trending upward with Jimmy Smith and Hayden Hurst set to return. On the other hand, I think Pittsburgh's in trouble. That new offensive coordinator, Randy Fitchner, is not doing them any favors, and their defense is not in good shape without Ryan Shazier. So if the Ravens continue to stack up some wins during this gauntlet portion of their schedule before the bye week, a postseason bye is not out of the question. Obviously, and you look at around the NFL, I want to touch on like the two quarterback sets, things like that. It's it's a gimmick that, that is seemingly coming around on certain teams. I mean, you saw the Bears last uh, in, in week four. They ran a, a two-quarterback play where they had Chase Daniel line up next to Mitch Trubisky, and, and they faked the handoff to Daniel, who isn't really a speedy quarterback by any stretch, and and it worked, and they were able to score a touchdown off of that play because Trubisky just flipped it up. Um, and then the Saints, they run it a lot because they have Taysom Hill, who is who is pretty much similar in athleticism. I think Lamar Jackson's faster and a little bit more athletic, but Taysom Hill is a little bit more or is a little bit athletic, just like Lamar. And they put him on the red zone. They have red zone packages for him as well. So it could be a trend that it that that, that is continuing to see an up an uptick in the NFL with, with these two quarterback sets and kind of putting in more athletic guys as opposed to your traditional pocket passers in the red zone because it does change the defense. I mean, we saw it in Denver when Lamar Jackson was on the field, how many players just simply committed to Lamar just dancing around in the backfield and running to the outside and being a, just a straight decoy, let's call it what it was. And then you look at this week, I mean, those zone read plays, I mean, Lamar Jackson, when he makes the right read, I mean, defenses are just thrown off by it. And, and if you add in the element, like I was saying before, if you add in the element of him actually throwing the pass or throwing the ball, it's going to be dangerous for teams, and I don't know how they're going to be able to defend it when you're throwing in Joe, Joe sometimes, and then you bring in Lamar. I mean, it's a totally different offense, and I don't know how you can prepare for all that. No question. I thought the, the Sean Payton and the Saints usage, I mean, they really used Hill as their primary red zone quarterback in week four. Um, and if and if the Saints are willing to take Drew Brees off the field, a future potential Hall of Famer, in those situations, I don't see why the Ravens cannot do the same with Joe Flacco and Lamar Jackson. Let's let's kind of go around the NFL, touch up on some some key matchups that occurred. Um, I, I want to start with the division real quick. Uh, the Cincinnati Bengals stole one on the road against the Atlanta Falcons. As you mentioned, they moved to 3-1. and one. Andy Dalton looked pretty good at the end of that game, connecting with A.J. Green to win the game in late seconds, 37-36. The Bengals continue to look like a juggernaut, man. I mean, that defense is looking really, really good with our boy Jesse Bates on there, and that offense is continuing to roll. Yeah, they won the shootout. Atlanta's defense is just decimated. Tyler Boyd has come into his own. Now, the, the Bengals did lose tight end Tyler Eifert, which I think at this point was kind of inevitable to a to a gruesome injury. feel sorry for that guy. Uh, I don't know. I think his career may be over at this point. So many injuries. Uh, but, yeah, the Bengals look tough. I think we were talking about this in our Slack chat. What teams are you most fearful of in the AFC? And my two choices that I don't want to see the Ravens play against are the Bengals and the Jaguars because those teams have the combination of interior and pass rush on the outside, and, and they do they do scare me a little bit. And then sticking with the division, the Cleveland Browns lost a barn burner to the, the Baltimore Saints opponent, the Cleveland Browns. They lost a barn burner to the Oakland Raiders, 45-42. And Baker Mayfield looked up and down. He didn't look as dynamic as he looked on Thursday night against the Jets. 
He made some mistakes. He made some big-time throws, though. And, and the other thing to mention is Hugh Jackson said it, and I didn't go through and count it officially, but he said that he counted nine drops for this receiving core, that one of the receiving cores that we thought was going to be one of the better ones in the league, we thought they were one of the better ones in the division nonetheless, and they dropped nine passes in, in that game, and they completely haunted that offense, and they were unable to win. I mean, there were some questionable calls down late in the game, and I hate to blame the refs, and I hate to say that, but there were a lot of bad calls in that game that led to the Raiders kind of coming back and winning but I mean the Browns that defense I know they allowed 45 points to Oakland but that defense is still pretty fierce uh the, the loss of Terrence Mitchell could be a lot because their they're, they're next cornerback in line whether it's TJ Carey is just not very good and they're not nearly as good as Terrence Mitchell I should say and that defense has a has a hole now and that and that's right at that corner spot yeah Cleveland should have won that game uh one of Baker one of the drops turned into a pick six uh, one of against Baker, which wasn't his fault at all, but I thought the referees really jobbed the Browns in this one. They had the game all but one with a first down to salt the game away. They marked it as a first down on the field. During the replay, the announcers said they they thought he even got further upfield than he should have. Carlos Hyde, I believe, was the ball carrier. Then they took it to uh, to challenge, or it was challenged from from the booth. And they brought on a former referee that says there's no way you can overturn that call. And then they do end up overturning that call. But then again, the Browns defense could not hold in overtime. You know, I think that's where the Ravens are possibly going to have some matchups against their secondary. Definitely, you're going to have to exploit that. And then I want to touch on the other team, the team that I said I'm not scared of if I'm the Baltimore Ravens, the Kansas City Chiefs. They won a barn burner on Monday night, 27-23. Patrick Mahomes continues to look insane. Uh, I don't understand him. He defies logic sometimes. His ability to kind of just escape the rush and just uh, and just create and extend plays and create opportunities for that potent offense. I know they had a key injury. Sammy Watkins went out that game. He did not return with a hamstring, hamstring injury. But the Chiefs offense continues to look dominant. I thought I thought Denver, though, the one thing I will say, for much of the game, I thought Denver did a great job at containing this explosive offense. But at, at the end of the game, it just, I mean, they allowed 14 fourth quarter points. I just thought at the end, you, you, it's just going to be hard to, to hold this offense that much. But I'm not scared because that defense is just absolute garbage in Kansas City. I mean, I know when they get Eric Berry back, if they get him back, um, it's going to be a, a much improved unit. But that defense is just not really good. And you could argue that they should have lost that game anyway because if Case Keenum hits Demarius Thomas on that nine route and doesn't throw an inaccurate pass, I mean, Broncos win that game. Their defense certainly isn't good, but I don't think they're quite as bad as you're making them out to be. I think I saw that they may be the best defense on third down this year, or at least they're up there near the top. And they do have a couple pass rushers, Justin Houston and D Ford is coming off the other edge. And he's actually having a, a breakout, a resurgent season. And I don't know, they're going to be tough to beat with Mahomes. He's just so hard to bring down. And when he can get out of the pocket, there's no way your corners can hold up in coverage for five seconds. I don't care who your corners are. I think I saw that he had the most passing yards from outside the pocket in NFL history on Monday Night Football somewhere. Um, so they're a tough team. Uh, I think the, you know they're going to be right there in the end vying for the AFC. They're, they've been surprisingly good this season. I mean, my whole thing with Kansas City is they've allowed the 25th most points per game at 28.8. They allow us a lot of points. And the, and the thing is, though, is it really doesn't matter because when that offense is putting up 40 points a game, it doesn't matter. Like, it, like it doesn't matter. When Mahomes is, is clicking as well as he is, and the, and the scary thing to look at is when you watch some of his first four games, 
they're leaving plays on the field. He's missing guys at times. I mean, I'm not critiquing Mahomes at all. I'm just saying, like, he's missed some throws. They've left some points out on the board. They, I mean, against the Steelers, um, I, when I went back and rewatched it, just kind of get scout the Steelers a little bit, Mahomes missed a couple of throws that would have put up more points. So, like, it's kind of scary to think about. He only, I think he had, like, six touchdowns in that game. He could have easily had eight or nine. Yeah, Andy Reid is a masterful play caller. There's no question about it. What are the Ravens going to play the, the Chiefs on December 9th? So that should be a good game in Kansas City. That should be. And then the other matchup I wanted to touch up on just in the AFC is the San Diego or the, the Los Angeles Chargers, excuse me. The Los Angeles Chargers 29-27 nearly nearly lost to the to the San Francisco 49ers Sands Jimmy Garoppolo. This Chargers team, are you surprised with how shaky they've looked, or is this kind of expected for you? Uh, they really, really, really miss Joey Bosa. Melvin Ingram is not getting it done. Derwin James is actually their best pass rusher this season. He actually won the game for them with a fumble at the to, to, uh, to win the game right there at the end. Uh, yeah, I think they're, they're miss- when you miss a premier pass rusher, I mean, you take away – Von Miller from the Broncos or Khalil Mack from the Bears or Miles Garrett from the Browns, that's going to have a big impact on any team. You're not allowed to say that that name that you, you said previously, the, the, the DJ name. You, you, you can't say that yet. Okay, that, that I'm name, sorry. That, that, name is, that name is banned from this podcast. You're, you're not allowed to say that. Um, and then the last matchup I want to talk about is the Patriots steamrolled the Miami Dolphins 38-7. And, and really, I don't think anyone was too surprised about this. Um, completely demolished them. And this showed to, to me that the Dolphins were exactly what I thought they were, not that good. And the Patriots, like I've been saying, and the team that we were talking about the conversation of teams you don't want the Ravens to play, for me, it's still the Patriots. I don't, I don't care what's going on with them. I don't care how bad they look. They're not really a September football team, I should say. And they still look pretty good. I mean, that offense looked pretty good. And the defense only held Miami to seven points. And that was in the fourth quarter. And the, and the Dolphins are, I mean, and the Dolphins offense was clicking up to this point, and And the Patriots have stepped up. I, I still wouldn't want to go to Foxborough and play them. And I wouldn't even want uh, the, the Patriots to come to Baltimore to play them. I don't know. I'm still not sold on that Patriots defense. They, uh, they don't have any pass rushers. And, uh, and that's a problem. I think the Ravens in a head-to-head matchup, hypothetically, yeah, Stefan Gilmore is going to take away whoever he's covering. But outside of that, I think you have some opportunities to exploit that defense. And I don't think Tom Brady has the arm strength he did earlier in his career. And uh, so we'll see. I think I think that's actually a, not a terrible matchup for the Ravens, hypothetically. And then quickly, we're going to go to college football. Just a quick scouting report. And the guy that caught my eye was probably in the game of the week, uh, Penn State, Ohio State, Jawan Johnson. What a catch by him. And he's skyrocketing up boards. And that was before his incredible catch. I mean, this is a receiver that really is earning himself day two consideration. I mean, good size, good route running. I, I really like this kid. That was a nasty catch. Odell Beckham-esque, one hand. I mean, he mossed them, basically. And yeah, he's a solid player. There's a lot of high-end receivers in this upcoming draft. Yeah, we thought last year's receiving class was deep and good, and we were, like, freaking out about it. I think this year's class probably is going to be better, to be honest. I mean, that's just my early takeaway. Um, there's a ton of talent. I mean, DK Metcalf, A.J. Brown, Marquise Brown uh, Marquise Brown as well. Uh, there's a couple uh, – Juwan Johnson, there's a couple other receivers out there um, – 
Debo Samuel that you can kind of throw out the names of. And I think this class is going to be more uh, talented at the top end as well and maybe just as deep. Uh, the other thing from that matchup that I learned, uh, Dwayne Haskins, everyone was talking about him potentially playing himself in the first-round consideration and rising up draft boards. I thought he looked absolutely awful for a majority of that game. And, and to me, he he was what I thought he was, and he's not that – I didn't think he's that good, like, to begin with, and I thought he kind of proved that he struggled a lot in that game. He, I think he proved the scouting part. I know his final stat line, 273 touchdowns and one interception will look sexy, but the QBR of 33.6 and just his inability to make simple passes during that game when, when, when the rushers were near him, I mean, it, it, to me, I just didn't like him. I, I, I just didn't like the way he performed when, when Penn State got pressure. Extremely inaccurate. I, I was uh, disappointed with, with that accuracy. We know we know Happy Valley is not an easy place to play with the whiteout that everybody seems to uh, to hype up to no end. But, uh, yeah, he was not good at all. Very inaccurate and a disappointing game. He's still young. Redshirt sophomore, so we'll see if he can rebound. And then the other game I want to mention, LSU Ole Miss. It's one that both of us circled on our calendars. We were really excited to see that LSU defense take on this, this stacked Ole Miss wide receiver core. And, and Greedy Williams looked pretty good, a, a guy who I think is going to be the top cornerback selected, maybe even top five, even. And A.J. Brown did solid nine for 72, but then my boy D.K. Metcalf limited the three for 37, had a long catch of 22 yards. But I still think D.K. Metcalf's wide receiver number one. Uh, I'm not so sure after this game. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, you know, there's a lot of receivers. I think some of it's probably going to come down to testing. And let's see how they test out because that is a, a position where some of the raw natural athleticism does bode well or, or maybe harm your chances of thriving at the next level. So we'll see how that goes. But I do agree with the notion that there is a little bit more high-end talent in this receiving class that, than the 2017 class. But, uh, but LSU is a good defense. They got a big game coming up this week with the Florida Gators, which we will preview in our, in our preview episode later this week. Another game we were watching, uh, Stanford-Notre Dame. Notre Dame squeaks by 38-17. And J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, another wide receiver that I failed to mention before that is really playing his way into really, honestly, first-round consideration. Uh, Just a big, tall, physical receiver that's really good in the red zone. Great body control and body positioning. I mean, his route running is solid, and his ability just to box out defenders is honestly, it's one of the best in the class already. And, I mean, he's got five, he had five receptions for 30 yards and a touchdown. He looked really good. I mean, he's just a red zone monster, to be honest. Like, like once they get inside the 20, Stanford just throws him, throws him fade routes, and he just, he wins them. I mean, honestly, people say 50-50 balls. To me, I think it's more like 80-20 balls. Oh, for sure. Sure. He's a, he's a power forward out there just boxing up almost like he's trying to get a rebound. Uh, you know, we're not, we'll see how that projects to the next level, but at this point he compares favorably to some of the better red zone targets in the NFL, whether it be an Alshon Jeffrey or a, or a new Hopkins or, or one of those guys. Cause he just boxes them out. Great physicality and excellent hands. Was there any other guys that you wanted to touch on? I know there was a there was a big injury in college football, not really draft related this year, just because he's not eligible. But Trevor Lawrence, true freshman, suffered a concussion um, in, in in Clemson's win over Syracuse. That's definitely gonna be something worth monitoring because I mean that that significantly hurts Clemson if, if Lawrence can't play because Kelly Bryant, as we know, he left and so he can still keep his retro year and still be eligible for next year, and he's gonna transfer. So that's a big injury to watch just in terms of college football in general. But obviously, again, he's a true freshman so he's not eligible for the draft just yet yeah i think clemson's going to need lawrence to come back they don't have a lot of depth there anymore after after the transfer 
Um, it was a good it was a good game. Very impressed with that Notre Dame defense. They're just so tough and, and hard hitting and and they have playmaker Drew Tranquil, their linebacker, really flashed to me in that matchup against Stanford. Another good week coming up of college. We have some of the best rivalries in the nation coming up with the Red River shootout, Oklahoma, Texas, as well as uh, the big Florida showdown between the Seminoles and the Canes coming up in college football week six. I forgot to mention my guy, Memphis running back Daryl Henderson. He's a junior. He's he's a little bit of a smaller guy. He's like five. He's five foot nine, two hundred pounds. But his production in college is is honestly it could be especially this year like hard to wrap your mind around. I mean through through five games he's got sixty five rushing yards, seven hundred or sixty five rushing attempts, seven hundred sixty rushing yards. That's an average of eleven point seven. His longest runs in seventy eight yards. He's got nine total touchdowns, but he also is a receiving threat. He's got eight receptions, one hundred seventy one yards, and two touchdowns. And then against Tulane, uh, a game that Memphis got blown out at, uh, seven for fifty one and, and a touchdown with with two receptions for forty seven yards and another touchdown. I mean, Daryl Henderson certainly is rising up on draft boards, and you, you obviously. You got to talk about uh, Kentucky's Benny Snell as well. Yeah, Benny Snell, I think he may be the number one back in the class. Maybe him or Damian Williams from Alabama. Bryce Love, he seems like he's starting to become a little bit injury prone. A couple good backs this year. Uh, we'll see We'll see how they start playing once the weather turns a little bit. That's when you really get a feel for, for who's going to be able to uh, to dominate at the next level. Yeah, Snell finished against South Carolina's tough defense, 99 rushing yards and a touchdown, um, and then he added a reception for 14 yards. I, I'm not sold on Snell being the number one running back. For me, it's still Damian Harris. And the other thing I want to mention is what do you do with Rodney Anderson? I mean, I know, I know he tore his ACL, but like – if he's ready to go, I still think he's number one. You know what I mean? And you still got Montgomery from from Iowa State as well. So this is really, I mean, it's not it's not an overwhelming running back class, kind of like last year, but it is a talented group still. It is. It is. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. I'm still a proponent of waiting until the third or fourth round to take a running back. So the more teams that want to reach for running backs early and have uh, chronic problems like we've seen with Leonard Fournette and some of the other players, running backs taken high, the better off we are as Ravens fans as long as as long as we continue to prioritize premium positions. Yeah, I think Saquon Barkley's kind of ruining that theory for you. I agree with you. I'm just saying I think Saquon Barkley, I, I wouldn't have taken him there, but I think he's still putting up solid production for New York to kind of maybe warrant that selection um, a little bit. But not, the not, Giants are but the Giants are one and three. What, what kind of difference so maker has he so been? It, so it's all on him. It's it's all on Barkley because they're one and three. It's all his fault. No, we're not, we're not going to blame the defense for, for that. We're not going to blame Eli Manning for just being absolute garbage. We're, we're just going to blame solely Saquon Barkley. No, you don't blame him solely, but you take a top a pick that early, you expect that he's going to be a difference maker. I think they would have been better off taking, taking maybe a corner like Denzel Ward because, as you said, they do have problems on defense. But I can't disagree with your take on Eli. He has been atrocious. Giants are probably the most disappointing team in the entire league through the first quarter. Well, I mean, if you really want to go back to it, once they traded JPP, they probably should have taken Bradley Chubb at two. But that's that's a whole different story. It's a whole different discussion. We'll get into our Monday morning GMs probably later because we'll talk about – I can't believe you brought up Derwin James. That still pisses me off. Um, but with all that out of the way, we are – Concluding, we will have our official preview episode 
for the Ravens-Browns Week 5 matchup. I'm excited. This is going to be a big game. Um, I'm predicting the. Uh, I'm just going to say it now. I'm predicting the Ravens to lose again in in, in Cleveland. But we'll, we'll, we'll see how that works out. I think you're going to take the, the Ravens. So, What's your record pick in Ravens games so far this year? Um, I think it's one and three, and I'm three and one. So we'll see. What's what? What's my record in the overall pick'em though? And what's what's your record in the overall pick'em? Well, I haven't seen the stats, but I had I had a pretty good week. We'll see. So did I. I, I I'll just tell you, I'm I'm losing to you by one. Either way, whatever. Uh, the Browns are gonna win this week. Sorry, Ravens fans. Sorry, Ravens flock. Browns are gonna win this week. Film pieces are coming out all week. I want to. I got a couple exciting things coming out. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at Real Logan Levy. You can follow Basili on Twitter at Playmaker FB. Make sure you follow us at Baltimore Beatdown, and then just check us out on there. So uh, with that, we're out. Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.